1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with John Brackett. John is an instructor of music at Vance Granville Community College in North Carolina. He's the author of a book-length study of the saxophonist and composer John Zorn and the co-editor of the Routledge Companion to Popular Music Analysis, Expanding Approaches, And that phrase, expanding approaches, applies very well to his new book published by Duke University Press, Live Dead, The Grateful Dead, Live Recordings, and the Ideology of Liveness, which examines the Grateful Dead through the lens of how we think about the value of live music. It is a terrific book, and I am thrilled to talk to him about it today. Welcome, John.
0: Thank you so very much.
1: So Dick Latvala, the one-time archivist of the Grateful Dead's vault, um, remarked, he said once, there should be a book about how tapers in the band connect to, quote, make that explosion we call the Grateful Dead experience and you've actually taken up this challenge and written the book. And I have to tell you, this is very honest. As a lifelong deadhead, I admit I was a little worried before I picked up the book because I was worried it'd be like when some academics try to write about pop culture and they get bogged down in jargon or a lot of uh, you know turgid prose sometimes. Your book has none of that. It's accessible. It's interesting. It explained things to me. Explained things to me about being a deadhead that I never realized myself about how, why we value live music. So I have to just say, well done, sir. <laughs> well,
0: thank you so very much. Thanks for the kind words. I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, I tried to write a book that was, you know, interesting and accessible to fans of the Dead, but at the same time to people who might not know them as well, but uh, might be
1: what I call dead curious, dead curious. All right. Well, let's let's start with the book. You you begin with this idea of live music. Now, of course, that wasn't a category before, say, the nineteen twenties. Music was all live. There was just the music, right? So, take us through the controversies, which I thought were fascinating, about live music versus what was called canned music, and and what musicians. thought was at stake?
0: Well, I mean, technically all music was live before 1877, you know, the invention of the phonograph. Really, our modern understanding of live kind of only makes sense in relation to recordings. So in the absence of recorded reproductions, there's really no need for the concept of live. And when I kind of use that term, kind of understand it kind of in in, in, in scare quotes for the time being. Because the word live in its more modern usage, it really didn't enter the popular lexicon until the 1940s. You know, it appeared a few years earlier in Britain, but before people used the word live to refer to music that was performed by living musicians in the presence of an audience, they used expressions like uh, manual music or living music. And sometimes uh, the phrase flesh music was used as well. Um, So recordings therefore really kind of introduced a new way of experiencing music. Uh, But at the same time, as you suggest, early sound recordings and recording technologies were implicated in a number of kind of controversies at the time. In 1906, the renowned composer and conductor, John Philip Sousa, published his famous essay called The Menace of Mechanical Music. Really, this was kind of a spirited defense of composers' rights and kind of a critique of contemporary copyright law. But by the late 20s, kind of the professional fortunes of theater musicians were overturned. This was following the introduction of synchronized sound in theaters. So with the arrival of soundies or the talkies, many theater musicians who'd been accompanying silent films for years suddenly found themselves out of work. So confronted with this new technology, the AFM, the American Federation of Musicians, the largest union of professional musicians in North America, launched a public relations campaign in 1929 that sought to convince the public of the value of music that was experienced in the flesh over recordings. And so in the earliest years of the depression, the the, uh, AFM ran a series of advertisements and publications throughout North America, advertisements in which recorded music is routinely described as canned music, and characterized as kind of the soulless, inferior, and inauthentic kind of form of music. The ads were really memorable. They routinely featured images of robots attempting to sing or play musical instruments. This was a a way to kind of underscore the mechanical aspects of recording, the non-human aspects. So the ads really didn't save too many jobs, but the images and the text of the advertisements, I argue, were really crucial in kind of promoting what I call an ideology of musical liveness in the United States. So in the introduction, I kind of describe how the AFM's advertisements uh, could of ascribed certain values and meanings to both living music and recordings. And here I borrow some uh, terms that, uh, or some ideas from the media scholar Sarah Thornton and talk about how the live versus recorded was understood In relation to uh, values such as the human versus the mechanical, the creative versus the imitative and life versus death.
1: Yeah, that was fascinating. And you just mentioned the talkies, because when I was reading that first chapter, it reminded me of two things. It reminded me of the plot of Singing in the Rain, which is where they're all nervous that like the jazz singer. And of course, half the characters in the movie are like, "Dad, no one's going to want to watch a talking movie. Like what a threat that was. And it also reminded me of what's going on now about the, the, you know, the AI and how this can influence, you know, and the writer's strike and things like how, how close are these, these, these three things, the live music thing, the AI and Singing in the Rain. I mean, they're very close. I mean, we can also look in June, um,
0: the local 802 of the AFM in New York City um, objected to the use of recorded music in uh, a musical called Here Lies Love by David Byrne and Fatboy Slim. That uh, musical had been using pre-recorded music and the AFM objected to that. And so uh they eventually agreed uh to include live musicians when the show was on previews on Broadway. So th- this is what that's happened interesting. almost 100 years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because part of the argument is part of the argument from the from the union is like no, you have to employ live musicians, like that's our job, but at the same time they they're also making the argument that there's something special about live music that you can't get from a recording. That's
0: right. That's exactly right. And this was kind of Uh, what was being developed kind of at this time, this, this idea of how to value live music versus the recorded form and finding some way to make this meaningful. And at the time it was this idea of spiritual contact, right? Right. That there had to be something kind of unique about that experience that made people want to go. Um, But if you really think about it at the time they had to kind of invent that you know yeah in order for the afm's campaign to resonate they had to convince the american public that something had been lost with the arrival of talkies
1: which the reminds me of
0: lost right was this idea of spiritual contact you know experiencing music in the presence of living performers
1: Right. And that reminds me of exactly what's going on now, which which this big summer return to the movies. We saw the stuff about Oppenheimer and Barbie Mission Impossible, this big push of like, don't watch things on streaming. you got to go out to the theater because that's like the real way to see a movie. And this book is all about, you know, how this idea about the real way, quote unquote, to experience music was invented.
0: Right. Well, we learned, you know, to appreciate it, to value it in right. a certain way, Um The technological kind of distinctions between live and uh, recorded were in place by 1877, but the ideas about what we think about live versus recording, this took a longer, longer time to develop.
1: Yeah, and what's cool is that we, we use those ideas all the time, and your book made me realize how much I was using them as if they were just a total fact of nature, but you show in the book, like, no, like, those ideas have a history, <laughs> and there was a lot of events behind them, right? You talk, nice. you talk about how um, you say that we started to redefine actually what we mean by music, and you say that actually canned music, like music that was made in the studio, started to get, and this is your quote, reimagined as a work of art, The idea that a studio record was a work of art. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. And kind of continuing the timeline, you know, by the time, you know, we get into the years following World War II, recording technologies and mediums changed dramatically in ways that fundamentally altered, you know, how people experienced and thought about recordings and music in general. Um, The introduction of magnetic tape recording provided listeners with a type of sonic fidelity that was really unlike anything they had heard before. Um, The recording at the same time was no longer necessarily a document of a prior live performance. The ability to edit and create overdubs on tape meant that some of the recordings were fabrications that were made entirely in the studio. At The same time, the introduction of the 12 inch vinyl LP in 1948 and the seven inch single in the following year. You know, these records were superior in almost every way to the shellac recordings that consumers were familiar with. So by the time we get to the fifties, records were starting to kind of achieve a, a certain type of status. And by the middle of the 1950s, of course, records were among the many prized possessions of teenagers who were just beginning to listen to rock and roll. And so whether it was heard on the radio or experienced on personal stereos, records themselves, the recorded physical objects acquired kind of their own unique aura, this kind of... sense of special feeling about them, right? This, they were right. the work of art. Uh, this started to develop among listeners at this time, young listeners especially, those who would kind of grow up to become the baby boomers. So even as the ideology of live performance continued to become entrenched in the minds of audiences, I argue that recordings, well, I and many other people, recordings also begin to acquire their own aesthetic ideology at this point.
1: Yeah, and you just said they get you, the records start to be seen as works of art, uh, you know, in themselves. And one thing that you just made me realize is that, of course, works of art can be collected. So you would show, you know, how how good of an audiophile you are. People still do this today by your record collection, your music collection.
0: Exactly. Yes, you get to show off those things that you have accumulated, right? And with it, all of the kind of implied knowledge, you know, that's associated with that.
1: Yeah. So before we move on to the dead. I want to talk about some famous, you mentioned records, you mentioned some famous live recordings before you move on to the Grateful Dead. I just want to throw out some album titles at you and get your reactions to them. Like all at once, we can we can go wherever you like. But you mentioned Benny Goodman's, the famous 1938 Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert. You mentioned uh, the Stones' Get Your yayas Out. And you mentioned Duke Ellington's Ellington at Newport. And you talk about how these records as a whole kind of like advance this idea that live music was worth listening to like kind of after the event. So can, can you talk about any of those records or all of them? Or Yeah, of course. I mean, um, the, the
0: Benny Goodman record, I really consider in many ways and other people kind of the first kind of commercially successful live album to be released by a major label. And what's very interesting about this record is not only that it uh, exists at all, that, you know, early reviews of Goodman's record are very interesting to read because it's it's uh, very interesting to see how these early critics are trying to kind of make sense of this live recorded document, how to interpret this thing, because this is 12 years after the fact. Musical tastes in jazz have changed dramatically. So the swing sounds that are emanating from this record sound like they're coming from another era, you know, after the war and swing is kind of passed on and really Bop and other styles are starting to emerge. At the same time, many of these early reviewers had attended the early performance and they, as they're listening to this record, they're all they're almost using it as a way to kind of, you know, confirm their memories. There are many instances where they talk about, you know, as we remember and the records confirm, Uh, And at the same time, the record had the ability to alter the memories of some of the reviewers or change their opinions. Um, One reviewer remarks upon a piano solo during Sing, Sing, Sing by Jess Stacy, And uh, he says, you know, at the time we didn't realize, you know, what an incredible performance it was. But upon listening to it in recorded retrospect, you know, we can now understand it as, recognize it as, one of the most inspired jazz performances of the swing era. I mean, this is interesting because you're really kind of using this record now and going back and historicizing a particular moment, a particular performance, one that maybe didn't stand out to you in any particular way the first time you heard it. So that's why I talk about Goodman's record Um, Something like Ellington, you know, as we kind of move into the 50s, I talk about now how, you know, given the, you know, the demand for records, you know, what we had just talked about, you know, live recordings really emerged as a way to meet the demand of the public for more records. And, you know, following the success of Benny Goodman's record in nineteen fifty. You know, many more live records continued to be released and came in a fast clip. In 1956, Columbia released Ellington at Newport. And this is, without a doubt, one of the most popular and celebrated and mythologized live recordings that was ever produced. You know, as it's told in biographies of Ellington and kind of the standard histories of jazz, Ellington at Newport supposedly captures a dynamic live musical performance that fundamentally changed the trajectory of Ellington's career. In particular, it's often told how during saxophonist Paul Gonzalez's solo during a performance of Diminuendo in Blue that a woman in the box seat stood up and she started to dance. And the liner notes that accompanied the original album record buyers read how the woman started to dance beginning around the seventh chorus of González's solo and that her energy began to spread throughout the audience until many choruses later the concert came to a raucous conclusion with most of the audience on their feet. You know really since that record was released you know the liner notes and they were written by producer George Avakian They've encouraged people to kind of listen a bit more closely to that live recording. And as they're listening, they kind of try and imagine when, at what point during that seventh chorus does it, does she rise? When does she get up? Right. And then you kind of keep listening, gauging as that intensity and drive. And you're kind of imagining yourself on that kind of summer day in Newport. Another record I mentioned is uh, James Brown's Live at the Apollo from 1963. This is another great example of how audiences at the time were kind of being sold on the ability of live recordings to represent some sort of the energy, you know, the liveness of the concert performance. You know, once again in the liner notes, the producer of the record, Hal Neely, describes how the recording was able to capture the James Brown personality the James Brown sound and the James Brown feel. So the modern live record then, you know, purports to offer some sort of access to the past, the opportunity to kind of listen in on a historic event. But at the same time, by offering repeated access to what had been an ephemeral ephemeral, you know, kind of unique musical moment, live recordings reaffirm kind of the basic claims of the ideology of live musical performance. And as I describe in the book, by the 1960s, record companies were aggressively selling the ideology of live musical performance to consumers in the form of live records.
1: Right. And you mentioned the point that Th- this idea came out that like li- live is greater than studio, but you also make the point that that wasn't always the case because of who you, you say who would want to hear the Beatles at Hollywood Bowl versus Sergeant Peppers or, you know, there's a there's a lot of really great studio albums. But there was this we were in this kind of limbo where the two were kind of duking it out.
0: <laughs> well, that quote you just mentioned was not mine. That was okay. by a guy <laughs> named Theodore uh, uh, Graysick. And uh, yeah, no, without a doubt, there's you know plenty of live records that are being released at this time. And it's not that necessarily live was better. It was different. And we're starting to kind of develop this idea of live as the kind of the more authentic authentic right form of musical experience. Yes. Right.
1: So let's let's now move into the Grateful Dead. So 1967, Jerry Garcia says, I don't think the live sound, the live excitement of of his band, The Grateful Dead, can be recorded and let's talk about their first ostensibly live album which is live dead which comes out in 1969 it's their third album they've made the grateful dead they've made anthem of the sun and they come out with this beautiful double lp live dead which which everybody loves right talk about what that did to promote the idea of this this live aesthetic with the grateful dead
0: Um, Well, in many ways, it was the record everyone was uh, waiting for uh, from the dead, Um, because by the time the group signed the recording contract with Warner Brothers in 1966, the dead were already recognized as kind of the premier live band in the San Francisco scene. And that included them, the Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service and others. Nobody doubted the band's ability to play dynamic live shows. That's why they were signed. But now they were part of the record industry. And now they were obligated to start producing records. And as they begin to make records, what they try to do is try to find a way to impart some sense of that liveness, some of the feel of their live shows on their earliest commercial studio releases. So, for instance, the instrumental tracks for their debut album were recorded live, although the vocal parts were recorded separately. Their second album, Anthem of the Sun, it brilliantly kind of weaves together both studio recordings and live recordings to create what many people would consider to be kind of the quintessential recorded document of the San Francisco psychedelic scene. But it was while recording their third album, Oxo that the band was introduced to the new 16-track multi-track recorder that was produced by the Ampex Corporation. And for a group of seven extremely curious musicians, 16 tracks offered untold opportunities for recording and experimenting in the studio. But 16 tracks also provided the band with new tools and strategies for recording live. And this is the real shift at this point. In early 1969, the band, along with some of their producers, uh, Betty Cantor and Bob Matthews, lug the 16-track machine over to the Avalon Ballroom, over to the Fillmore West and record some live performances. With that new technology, the, the ability to kind of isolate individual instruments and voices through close miking, the powerful ability to mix and edit individual performances using the 16-track machine resulted in dynamic live recordings that in the minds of many fans and critics finally captured some sense of the band's dynamic shows. So when it was released in November of 69, Live Dead really endeared the band to their fans and critics. It also provided The Dead with kind of a, a template for recording and releasing many of their subsequent live albums as well. So we're really talking about the shift in technology, the quote that you provided, when Jerry said that in 67, it was true. Given the recording equipment that was available at the time, they were unable to record that band at the types of volumes that we're accustomed to and this extreme dynamic contrast. But once we get the 16 tracks, we can isolate these, we can mix them, and you get these incredibly clear recordings. I mean, listen to the opening of Dark Star on Live Dead, and you can hear a pin drop. And this is one of the most remarkable live recordings that you will hear, given that clarity. And that clarity just can, you know, persist throughout the record.
1: Yeah, you call it. It's funny because people appreciated it, as I know I did the first time I heard it, as kind of like this, like this raw recording of like what the Grateful Dead sounded like live. But you point out that it was painstakingly edited, you know, to kind of meet these standards of studio recordings, and you call it an idealized representation of the band's live sound, which is different than just like a tape or tape, which we'll get to later on.
0: Yeah, I mean, people loved it because, like I said, for the first time they felt like the band had produced a recording that captured their liveness. Yeah. You know, it's important, though, to keep in mind that just as the band thought that these recordings represented them and their live shows, fans and critics agreed, you know? And so it's kind of the very beginning of this idea of the next best thing to being there, right? Yeah. This kind of, ex- you know, sentimental expression that has been uttered, you know, innumerable times in relation to live recordings of the dead.
1: And one of the things your book made me realize, which maybe actually laugh out loud when I was reading it, was that we're so used to the beautiful segues between the songs on Live Dead. When you listen to it on compact disc, it's, you know, the first track, so to speak, is maybe 60 minutes long when you start with Dark Star and St. Stephen 11. But that the albums were set up so you can play side one, then side three, and then flip them over to kind of give the illusion of a whole show in your living room.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when I would I talk about with Live Dead and also with uh, the Grateful Dead or Skull and Roses and some of the later releases is that, yeah, they're starting to model the live records on the show. Yeah. The, the way that the shows are starting mm-hmm. to evolve, some of the live records are assuming a little bit of that shape as well. And so for people who had attended shows Certain things would have resonated with them, where certain songs appeared right. on the records, right? You know, was it part of a first set or a second set? The presence of jams and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's why in Without a Net, the big Branford Marcellus, Eyes of the World jam, is in the, it's in the second set, so to speak, in the CD set.
0: Right, yeah, those CDs are you're know, labeled as first yeah, set. Yeah, first set and second well, set. Too, yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's move on a little bit to Europe 72, which kind of is in the same the same neighborhood of, of where they were kind of going between the live and the studio sound. So I remember listening to that big, beautiful, white three album set as a kid and thinking like, I feel like I'm there. This is like what the Grateful Dead sound like. But you point out that it's filled with overdubs and corrections. And it's almost, it seemed to me like the band was hovering between two sets of values and assumptions about what an album should sound like. It's is, is Europe to a live album? Or is it a studio album? Or is it a little of each? Like, where was the band at this time?
0: Well, you know, I think what this shows is that the band had a very clear understanding between playing live and recording. Because what it suggests to me is that, you know, they take these live recordings, and they're not really interested in producing some sort of Document, You know, um, they are very much treating this like a commercial product, you know, the band acknowledged a distinction. One of the uh, engineers who worked on Europe 72, said that, you know, the dead weren't purists at all, when it came to making records, they'll do overdubs on live records, they are making records, and they clearly had a, you know, a studio mentality, when it came to producing and releasing their earliest live commercial recordings. Um, whether they were studio or live records, they were records. And that meant that they were going to be produced in a certain way. They weren't going to put something out there, you know, maybe that would have appeased the fans, some sort of deep cut, or maybe some longer jam that had some, you know, you know, clams or mistakes in it. That wouldn't have happened. This whole aesthetic of kind of a warts and all approach to recording I don't think was part of their mindset at this time. You right. know, they were releasing records and they had to be the top quality.
1: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go
0: to your happy price, price, line
1: Right. And we'll get into that later on about how the warts and all came to be valued even more <laughs> because people want to hear all the, the mistakes and the crowd noise and things like that. Right. So so part of the way that happened was, of course, the birth of the taper community. So let's talk about that. Like who are the tapers? You know, you make you make a a lot about the word tapes, about why they're called tapes in the book, not just because they're on cassettes. But let's talk about the tapers and and the dead's relationship with them and what they did to advance these ideas about live music.
0: Yeah. Uh, And this is really, you know, part there's kind of these two interweaving parts, both what the band is doing as a business, creating live records. But then beginning in the early early 70s, the types of recordings that are being produced uh, by fans, uh, because Yeah, by that time, a growing number of fans were starting to tape the Dead's concerts on equipment that was being smuggled into the venues. You know, mics, tape machines, blank tapes, cables, batteries, you name it. Some of these people were taping the concerts uh, for their own personal use. Other people were taping these and then beginning to trade these recordings with other fans. So... The practice of taping among fans, you know, emerged around the same time that bootleg records began to appear in record stores throughout the country. And not surprisingly, the presence of tapers at the Dead's concerts uh, often suggested to members of the band and their road crew that their shows were being bootlegged and that these performances were being sold without their permission. Now, some of the recordings that exist out there even capture moments when members of the dead and their crew were busting audience members for taping. There's a recording from uh, December 31st, 1970, and Jerry Garcia remarks upon the number of microphones that he can see from the stage and jokes about the presence of what he calls Underground Records Incorporated. And uh, bassist Phil Lesht urged members of the crew to find the alleged bootleggers and follow the cables that were strewn throughout the winterland. Even earlier that year, uh, Sam Cutler, the Dead's road manager, uh, can be heard uh, demanding a tape from an audience member uh, during a show at Temple University in May of 1970. So it seems pretty clear that at this early stage, the Dead and their crew were generally suspicious of people who were recording their shows. But even as the band and the crew continued to bust the tapers, taping continued to grow among fans. And a few years later, people had access to the growing library of non-commercial recordings that were available uh, free as part of numerous kind of tape exchanges that were forming across the country. You know, from the earliest days of the practice, the people who were taping the shows and people who were collecting them made it clear that this was not a commercial enterprise. They weren't interested in making money by selling these amateur-produced recordings. Instead, the recordings were traded among fans, many of whom most likely owned the Dead's commercial releases, but wanted even more live recordings of the band. And people throughout the Dead organization we were very much aware of the activity of the tapers. Um, a great deal of my research was done at the Grateful Dead archive at UC Santa Cruz. And I spent a lot of time digging through the business files and concert files there. And in November of 1972, I discovered a little note writ- was written by a guy named Dave Parker. He was a member of the Dead's office staff. And he sent a note to band manager John Cutler regarding the many inquiries the uh, band was receiving From people who were interested in these, you know, amateur produced live recordings that were available. You know, Parker suggested that the group needed to develop some sort of early policy regarding the uh, taping. You know, should they stomp it out? Should they license deals with these people or just kind of tolerate it? So for most of their career, the dead chose to tolerate fans taping, but they were also willing to listen. To business proposals from members of the taping community. In the book I talk about how uh, a well-known uh, taper, a guy named Les Kippel, uh, uh, communicated with the dead. he was one of the founders of the earliest exchanges, the first free underground Grateful Dead tape exchange. In October of 72 he sent a letter to the dead, you know inquiring about the possibility of working together, you know forming a business relationship and distributing live concert recordings. You know in march of 74 kipple sent a 20-page business proposal to the dead on behalf of his kind of new company a company called dead relics and at this time Kippel imagined uh, dead relics as an organization that would work with the dead produce live concert recordings that they would then sell through mail order and kipple's proposal detailed what he called this connoisseurs club where Members would have access to concert recordings spanning the band's career, including some of the most recent shows. His proposal was thorough and made many excellent points about the massive appeal of the Dead's live concert recordings and the uh, the logistics that would be involved in producing and distributing them. But by '74, Kippel was presenting his proposal. The Dead had uh, left Warner Brothers; they'd formed their own record company. And as they read through his proposal, they realized that everything he was describing, they could do on their own, therefore did not need the help of anybody outside of the group. So, you know, Kippel's original plan, you know, didn't pan out, but quite quickly, he kind of changed the focus of his organization. And by the end of the year, Dead Relics had emerged as a fanzine one of the most important early fanzines that was dedicated to uh, the, the the dead and this emerging taping culture. But the dead picked up on Kipple's idea. And in 1976, um, they started thinking about making a brand new record label, one that would be devoted to releasing archival recordings. Uh, within the organization, a guy named Steve Brown, a well-known uh, taper at the time, they made provisional plans for this label, for re- uh, releasing unreleased material, studio recordings, and live recordings, they calculated the cost of making the records, distributing them, and they also began to consider releases for the new label as well. Unfortunately, at the time they were starting to make these plans, the record company was in pretty serious financial straits, and they couldn't really continue to kind of uh, kind of follow through with that idea. And on October of 96, they signed a new contract with Arista Records. So as they prepared to return to the road, begin making studio records, the kind of the plans for the archival label were put on hold. In fact, uh, some of the terms of the contract, the dead signed with Arista in October of 76 prohibited the band from releasing any of their archival material at the time.
1: Yeah. It seems like there was this, it started out so innocently, so to speak, because one thing I thought of as you were explaining it now and in the book is that I remember being in college and seeing the dead. And I remember there was a sandwich shop on campus and you can get tapes of shows, cassette tapes. And the rule was you had to give, because every show was basically on two cassettes, right? You had to give them three blank cassettes, and they would give you one show and two. So that was their quote unquote profit was they you gave them another blank tape. And it was, it was all just to get, and it was so much fun. But then of course, what happens is the record companies get involved and, and it's like uh it's like the part in every VH1 special where, you know, it used to be about the music man. And they're trying to like make, they're trying to like struggle between art for art's sake, but also like the realities of, of the commercial market.
0: Precisely. Yeah. And I don't even think that the band fully understood the allure and the appeal of these kind of, Uh, Amateur produced recordings and even some of the less polished recordings that the band was making on their own at the time. Um, I don't think they fully understood it. I think in many ways they really, you know, thought of live records still just as records. Yeah.
1: And it also has to do with with the dead and who they were because you know they famously you don't know what they're going to play that night. A lot of times they didn't know that you don't know which direction the jam is going to go. I mean you can't imagine, and this is no knock on her, but you can't imagine a taper community for Taylor Swift or something where where everything is choreographed like down down to the minute or something.
0: Right, we are talking about a very different era of live. Yeah. This point. yeah,
1: yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk about th- this idea of live. This you say that the Deadheads found the music on the tapes more authentic. And when I read that, I'm like, he, he I'm like, John is 100 right. There's this idea that you articulate that somehow these tapes, even the sound quality, might not be great yet. We're not there yet in time, but somehow this tape is more authentic. So, so what's the source of that authenticity? Why did people think that?
0: Yeah. I mean- I mean, in the book, what I really try to do is kind of make sense of even what that notion of authenticity even means (laughs) in (laughs) relation to the tapes, you know? I mean, how does that idea even emerge in the first place, you know? And so I think it's different, you know, for different fans. For some people, the tapes are kind of more authentic in that they exist outside of the traditional marketplace, right? They're freely traded. They're not bought and sold. Um, they were made by members of the audience, right? They're not touched by the the, the record label or anything like that. Um, you know, for others, perhaps the assumed authenticity of the tapes, you know, might have to do with the fact that, you know, unlike the band's commercial recordings that were kind of put together as compilations and featured heavily edited performances, uh, the tapes often offered full shows, and you know hadn't been kind of fixed in the mix. You know they had everything; they had the crowd noise, they had you know the the space in between the songs. You know it was kind of a it was a document in in many ways, um, and for others, a sense of authenticity may have to do with kind of the sense of strong friendships and communities that kind of formed around the tapes. You know, so really for whatever the reason or reasons um tapes in contrast to the band's commercial live releases they provided fans with you know an alternative aesthetic of
1: recorded liveness. and part of that is- excuse me, part of that aesthetic about recorded liveness had to do with crowd noise. Again, something I, I, something that worked on me my whole life, but when I read your book, I'm like, oh, he's onto something, right? So you talk about crowd noise actually in Ellington at Newport, and then you talk about how it wasn't until Reckoning, which is their double live acoustic album in 1980, that we even started to hear crowd noise on the official grateful dead recordings and you say the crowd noise lends an aura of sonic realism that could be reproduced and sold back to fans and if you listen to the dead you know there's there's all these cheer lines i call them like there's certain lines in certain songs like uh you know take you to the leader of the band and ramble on rose where everyone cheers and or in bertha you know why don't you arrest me but those cheers were always kind of like held down in the mix. You say that in Reckoning, they start to bring the crowd noise into the recording to give it this aura of liveness. Can you talk about crowd noise? I thought that was interesting.
0: Yeah. And um, without a doubt, I mean, you can definitely hear crowd noise on their earliest, uh, you know, sure. uh, live releases, you know, you can hear it in Live Dead, uh, Skull and Roses, but uh, it's downplayed. The point i make with reckoning is again related to another kind of document i stumbled upon in the archive and this was a page uh, from a meeting in probably december of 1980 as the band were kind of kicking around ideas for naming the new album um and they were kicking around uh, different things eventually decided on reckoning but in the corner of this document uh, it says uh, it's also something to the effect of, you know, also important to note that Dan Healy, the live sound mixer for the dead and Jerry Garcia note that, you know, the crowd noise, the ambience is also going to play a significant role on this record. And that I found very interesting because they were obviously they this was something that they now understood as being kind of important to the quality of the recording. And they wasted no effort in making that a musical part of Reckoning and then Dead Set that it was released shortly thereafter. I describe how they set up a variety of uh, microphones throughout the hall in Radio City Music Hall to capture the uh, the sounds of the audience. And these recordings then as uh, they were mixing the record, they were kind of mixed in a way They were the time spread of them was such that they kind of got rid of the time lag that would have generally occurred between when you hear the music and then when the crowd responds, they reduce that time between them. And so you get this very intimate type of recorded performance here. When you listen to Reckoning, it's almost like you are on the stage and you are surrounded by the audience. Yeah, it's a very unique sound. Uh, it almost, you know, reminds me, uh, you know, the, the way that the uh, the kind of MTV unplugged recordings were also kind of mixed. They right. had this really kind of intimate, kind of small venue type of sound to them. And what I argue is that the band's decision to really utilize and manipulate crowd noise was driven by their knowledge of the tapes, and some of the qualities and values that the fans attributed to the non-commercial recordings, trying to find some way to you know, bring in some of those qualities into their own commercial releases as well.
1: Yeah, because you made me realize that that album I've heard a million times, the first song on it is Dire Wolf. <clears throat> you hear the crowd noise and some guy yells out, play something old. And that could have easily been edited out, but they wanted it in there to give you the you are there kind of feel.
0: Right. Yeah. Definitely. Without a doubt. I mean that, and even with with the electric performances on Dead Set too, the way that they are mixed, it's, it, you know, gives this really yeah. unique character to the recordings. But again, one that was, as I said, kind of painstakingly edited in the studio. I mean, this is a studio mentality, you know, being applied to these recordings to give it this kind of more or less kind of authentic feel.
1: And that wasn't just for the Dead, too, because, of course, I, I laughed to myself. Like, what song is it you want to hear? Like, Freebird! Like, everyone, <laughs> like that's part of, like, the experience of hearing Freebird. <laughs> exactly, right. So the Dead have, they have make peace in their uh, with the tapers. They have this meeting in 1984 about what they're going to do with the tapers. This leads to taper tickets. The Dead make peace with the tapers. They get their own section now. They're playing hundreds of shows. Jerry Garcia falls into a diabetic coma in 1986. He comes out teaches himself how to play again. The band records and releases the studio album In the Dark in 1987 and everything changes for the Dead and their fans and for these ideas about live music, right? How so? Yeah, I mean, by
0: 1987, the Dead had not released any official recordings in six years. And during that time, taping, and tape trading, you know, really maintained this kind of stable, critical mass of fans for the band's live shows. You know, by 1986, the group was still one of the highest grossing touring bands, despite not having much, if any, exposure on contemporary radio, and more crucially, the emerging outlets of music video. So following Garcia's health scare in '86. The Dead finally had to acknowledge that they needed to kind of break out of the routine that they'd been in for you know six years, if they really kind of hoped to continue the trip that they'd been on for a couple of decades. And so, you know, for the first time since 1981, Ariston now had a new record by the Grateful Dead to promote, and they went all out. Um, band brought in Gary Gutierrez to produce their first music video for the single Touch of Grey. Um, Gutierrez had created the remarkable kind of opening animation sequence in the grateful dead movie and was very familiar with the mythology and the iconography of the dead, you know, for this video, he kind of fashioned these skeleton marionettes of the band members who were performing again in front of a live audience. So again, the whole live dead dichotomy, the video, you know, of course, was a big hit on MTV helped touch a gray become the band's first and only top 10 single. The album, In the Dark, also broke into the top 10 of the top uh, pop album charts. Um, and the success of the album and the single attracted many new fans. Almost overnight, the Dead began to draw even larger crowds to their shows, and they kind of graduated from arenas to now stadiums. You know, So In the Dark was the last record that the Dead owed to Arista. You know, in the wake of the tremendous success of the album, the dead held all the cards when it uh, came time to renegotiate their contract. You know, so among the many favorable terms of the new contract that they signed with Arista in 88, the dead were now finally allowed to release archival recordings from their vault, something that the label had uh, prohibited them from doing uh, in the original contract. So now they were free to kind of start releasing You know, these, you know, fabled live recordings from their vault on their own, you know, through mail order.
1: I want to run three names by you one at a time to talk about some of the people behind the scenes that led to the the Grateful Dead sound and contributed to this idea of what it means to hear the dead live. So we'll go through them in order, I guess. The first one's Dan Healy. Talk about Dan Healy. Who was he? How did he add to the whole dead live sound?
0: Yeah. Dan Healy was the live sound mixer for the Grateful Dead for most of their career. Uh, More than anyone else, Healy was responsible for crafting the live sound of the dead, and he took his job very, very seriously. Uh, Healy, along with Owsley, Bear, Stanley, and other sound engineers helped design the band's fabled wall of sound PA system, Uh, and people throughout the industry acknowledged his almost obsessive commitment to the band's live sound. Um, In October of 1980... During the band's run of shows at the Warfield Theater, concert promoter Bill Graham referred to Healy's, uh, what he called his tenacious pursuit of Nirvana sound. Um, So, Healy was also a crucial player in the band's recording projects. You know, before turning his attention to live sound, he worked in a recording studio in San Francisco. In many respects, it was his technological expertise and experience. Uh, that were crucial in crafting the collage of live and studio recordings on Anthem of the Sun. And he's also credited as a producer on uh, Reckoning and Deadset, the two double live albums from 81. Healy was also the producer of the band's earliest commercial archival recordings. In 1991, Healy and Grateful Dead Productions uh, began releasing uh, recordings uh, that were part of a series called From the Vault, and from the beginning, Healy decided that the uh, performances that would be on the series would be selected from concerts that had been recorded on multi-track. Uh, the multi-track recordings, of course, provided Healy and other people who had worked on the uh, From the Vault series incredible amount of freedom when adjusting and mixing and sometimes fixing individual tracks or entire recordings. So much like his work mixing the band's concerts, the From the Vault recordings are marked by, you know, what Graham called this tenacious pursuit of nirvana sound. In the book, I note how Healy really identifies a sense of liveness as a quality of the multi-track recordings. And I consider this kind of highly technical language of liveness that he uses when describing these recordings, this uh, sort of Rationalized discourse that's often heard in the modern recording studio and spoken by experienced producers and engineers.
1: Yeah, and the idea was that, and of course, Bill Graham's on the beginning of One from the Vault, and that, that sounds like, you know, when he, good evening, we welcome you, and they all get introduced, right. and, and that's so terrific. But I love what you said about the language because there's all kinds of technical language in the line of notes for one for the vault that that I, get, I don't know if other people are like me, but when I read that, I'm like, it's like, you know, this is on a 32-bit, blah, 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 and I'm like, uh, all right, yeah, it sounds great. But you make the argument that that language kind of convinces the casual listener like me to like, you know, don't worry, we took care of this. You're not going to leave how great this sounds and you're in good hands.
0: Yeah, not only convincing the listener, but also I think is a reflection still once again of what it is that they consider to be important about these live recordings, right? Right. It is the ability to, you know, it, it's not like they're just going through and just, you know, th- throwing out recordings right. you know, from the ball. They're very careful about the quality and they acknowledge this over and over again. And so the ability to kind of, uh, you know, work with these multi-track recordings, I think for Healy and others was, it's a no-brainer. Of yes. course, these are the recordings that we would use. I mean, these are the the best, you know, mm-hmm. recordings and Allow us to do the most, uh, you know, as much as we can.
1: Yeah, and that language convinces you as a listener, like you should take this seriously. There are highly technical things going on here that might be above you, but you just <laughs> sit down and press play, and you are going to love this. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so the next name we have to get to of of the Betty boards because people hear about Betty boards, right? Do you have? I got a Betty board recording of this. Who was Betty Cantor Jackson?
0: Yeah, along with Healy. Uh, Betty Cantor Jackson worked with the dead on the road and in the studio Um, in the late 60s. Kenner Jackson and her partner at the time, Bob Matthews, worked at uh, Pacific Recording Studio and local venues in the Bay Area, including the Carousel Ballroom. Um, She's identified as an engineer on the band's third album. And along with the dead and Matthews, she's credited as a producer on Live Dead. Um, And she continued to work as a producer and engineer on the band's uh, studio and commercial live recordings throughout much of the 70s and into the 80s. Um, When the band returned to the road in June of 76, following their touring hiatus, Cantor Jackson was hired as part of the road crew uh, to record the band's concerts and to produce tapes that would be added to an existing archive of recordings that were housed in a space that uh, the organization referred to as the vault. And over the next few years, Cantor Jackson continued to make vault recordings and work on commercial recordings, uh, commercial recording projects with the band. But in the early years of the 80s, the relationship between her, uh, her and the group had become strained and she left the organization. Before she left, however, She gathered up her recording equipment, along with a large number of recordings from the vault, recordings that she had produced while on the road with the band. And it's at this point that kind of, you know, the legends and the myths start to take over because the story of what happens next kind of vividly speaks to the power of live recordings among fans of the Grateful Dead. Because by the mid 80s, Cantor Jackson had become delinquent on a storage space that that she'd been renting, space that included many of the tapes that she had snatched from the vault. Despite the fact that many of the items in the storage space had been damaged by water, the contents were put up for auction and the complete lot was split among multiple buyers. Now, as it's described in the popular lore, among the buyers, a group of people worked to kind of restore the damaged recordings and convert them to a digital format. By the spring of 1987, just as the dead were kind of beginning to rise again, following the success of Touch of Grey, deadheads began to learn about this new batch of recordings that were starting to circulate in the community, including a remarkably clear recording from Cornell University in 1977. You know, people throughout the trading community quickly came to realize that these were some of the recordings that Cantor Jackson had produced for the band from the 70s. Given their provenance, the cache of tapes was quickly dubbed the Betty Boards.
1: Yeah. And that's, of course, that Cornell show is the Holy Grails. The, yeah, you, you mentioned it at the opening of the book, that's one of the most highly sought after uh, shows that we have. So a third name to throw at you is Dick Latvala. And what he did, and there's you have a great photo of him in the book. I love him. He kind of looks like David Letterman, you know, holding a bunch of these, and he's just grinning ear to ear, holding these tapes. He's in the vault. And, and I loved in the book how you point out that the vault, no, it really was an Indiana Jones vault. Three people had the key. We had a meeting about who would get the fourth key. You get your key. It's it, it's like a Mission Impossible level access to get into this thing. So talk about Dick um, Watvala and, and Dick's picks.
0: Yeah, unlike, uh, you know, Healy and Cantor Jackson, uh, Dick Latvala, by his own admission, had no real kind of knowledge of recording and sound production. Instead, Latvala was, you know, this inspired and dedicated fan who kind of, through luck and determination, became the first official tape archivist for the Grateful Dead. What a gig. (laughs) Tell me about it, right? (laughs) As a student, uh, he attended some of the Dead's earliest shows in California, uh, but by the 70s, he and his family had moved to Hawaii and got unable to see the band perform live, he started to contact many of the early tape traders and the, uh, through the exchanges. In exchange, as you said, for some blank tapes and some of his finest marijuana, tapers from across the U.S. began to share recordings with Latvala. And for years, he collected and traded recordings, all while writing detailed notes on each performance that he collected. You know, he continued to amass recordings through the 70s and 80s, by which time he had returned to California. Upon returning, Latvala befriended Bill Kidd Candelario, a longtime crew member of the Dead, and Candelario introduced Latvala to members of the Dead organization. You know, given his encyclopedic knowledge of the band's concert history, Latvala was hired by the dead in 84 to help organize and catalog the vault with Willie Legate, uh, who was then the current archivist. Skipping ahead, by 1992, Dan Healy had started to kind of lose interest in the From the Vault series. And Latvala was the official tape archivist for the dead. And in 1983, he and the dead introduced another parallel archival series called Dick's Picks. So whereas the recordings used in the From the Vault series were sourced from the multi-track recordings, the recordings that were to appear on the Dick's Pick series were sourced from the band's two-track stereo recordings. Now, unlike the multi-tracks, the two-track recordings could not be subjected to the same degree of sonic refinement. So as a result, these two-track soundboard recordings tended to sound a little bit rougher and exhibited a sound quality that some listeners might consider to be a little less polished. But Latvala knew that these were qualities that made these recordings appealing to so many deadheads. You know, fans were accustomed to hearing these brief glitches or warbles on many of the tapes in their collections, or, you know, kind of, uh, cuts in the performance as the tape ran out and the tapers struggled to kind of change the tapes out as the music kept playing. Also, number of the inevitable miscues by band members and not-so-perfect performances. So kind of in other words, the performances on Dick's Pick Series really kind of sounded like the types of recordings that were valued and freely traded among the legion of deadhead tapers. In contrast to the highly technical rationalized language of the from the vault series the language of liveness that was used to promote dick's picks kind of emphasized the spontaneity and unpredictability that characterized the grateful dead concert experience you know and as i describe in the book i contrast the dick's picks and the from the vault series according to these kind of languages of liveness you know for latvala v- and the dead the Dick's Picks series was promoted to appeal to this aesthetic sensibility of the tapers.
1: Yeah, you talk about how the Dick's Picks. Uh, you know, I have several of them. How the original ones they look like a, a tape, uh, the the box that the real trail tapes would come in, and there was this caveat emptor on the back. And you say they kind of condition the consumer, like how to listen to these, and that you say like we actually wanted the oral gremlins that that he talks about there because there was something again back to that word authentic about them, right?
0: precisely and this is where yeah you have to use that word authentic because it sounded like the tapes that yeah. they were to hearing um it had the mistakes and it also acknowledged some kind of you know some sense of the humanness of the yeah. dead of their shows you know i mean so many of their live releases were highly polished you know objects they were right. works of art but this you know was something immediate This was something that was familiar to fans who had seen the shows. And this was what they valued.
1: Yeah. There's times when like Jerry forgot the words or messed up, messed it up and it's okay.
0: Exactly. Right.
1: So let's move up to the present day. Let's go up to present day ideas about liveness, right? You make the point that there's a whole other aspect that we just touched upon it with the look of the tape boxes, which is that you said, this is a quote from you, the dead and their business partners continue to rely on traditional and increasingly outdated forms of media, notably CDs, LPs, and DVDs in promoting and marketing the band's still evolving legacy of liveness. So what's interesting is that we can get a lot of these live recordings downloaded from all kinds of places, from Archive or from the the Dead's actual website. You can buy the downloads, but people still want CDs. They still want LPs. They still want a physical thing. Why is that? What do you make of that?
0: Well, I think, you know, for decades, fans listened to and collected live recordings on the Grateful Dead on a variety of formats. Records, reel-to-reel tapes, cassettes, CDs. So by continuing to produce and market physical releases, many of them as kind of these limited editions, the Dead and their business partners kind of acknowledge that live recordings were meaningful among fans, not only for the sounds that were contained on the recording, but also for what those recordings represented as containers, as material objects, right? For years, fans decorated tape cases. They made a, elaborate set lists, took detailed notes of specific performances. You know, others reading liner notes or taper notes while listening to a recording. A strong kind of material culture associated with the tapes, you know, is reflected in the contemporary business practices of the dead and Rhino. You know, at the same time, these physical releases also seem designed to appeal to those fans who kind of possess this more curatorial bent. You know, many of the physical releases feature, for instance, uh, detailed liner notes, essays and photographs that serve to historicize individual concerts or tours or venues.
1: Yeah. So. This is still going on. We're still buying these CDs, right? We all are. Now we have Dave's Picks, which the Grateful Dead Archivist David Lemieux releases four times a year. So every year, Deadheads, you can subscribe. You can get four full shows on CD. Um, Dick's Picks at 36 shows, complete shows, except for the first four. So Dave's picks just released its 47th complete show. And The Dead release one big box every year. So they had a recent one called Here Comes Sunshine, which is five complete shows from 1973. It's sold out in five minutes on the website. You can stream it of course, but people want that box, right? So here's my final question for you. The last thing we might need is another complete show. It's the last thing any Deadhead needs. You know, our hard drives are filled up. Our CD racks are, they might be the only CDs we still have. We don't mind other things on streaming. But why do we keep buying these shows? Well, I think
0: the simple answer is that there's still a lot of tremendous music to be heard. Uh, it's important to remember that these were some of the most innovative and accomplished songwriters and improvising musicians yeah. of the second half of the 20th century. You know, there's still much to be learned about the band, the organization, as we continue to listen to these recordings. You know, as a historian, kind I follow each new release because I'm interested and how these live recordings continue to be promoted and mythologized among a still sizable fan base, you know, many of whom never saw the band perform
1: live. Right. And it's also this idea about you said before that the, the material thing becomes a, a collectible work of art because you know I have a friend of mine who 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 he was missing a few spots in the Dave's picks and spent he wouldn't even tell me how much on eBay to get a copy of like Dave's you know Dave's picks four and I said you you already have he's like I got to get I get like it becomes almost like people that collect comic books or baseball cards right
0: exactly exactly you can never have enough. <laughs>
1: That's and that's a great way to end the interview. You can never have too much Grateful Dead. <laughs> so, John Brackett, it's been great talking to you today. And also, before we sign off, I want to urge our listeners that you created a Spotify playlist to accompany the book.
0: Well, the publisher did. The so publisher, okay. yes, yes, they did as well. So, uh, but I chose the songs, uh, but it was their idea, so I have okay. to acknowledge the ideas, but. Uh, it's it's pretty good. I picked some good ones. You did. You certainly did.
1: I pretty- <laughs> 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 listened to it. I called it research. That was research for the interview. So exactly. It's the great talking today. Live Dead, the Grateful Dead live recordings, and the ideology of liveness is available wherever books are sold. John, thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so very much.